The following podcast contains naughty language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 2nd, 2024. On this week's show, Slate's Ben Mathis Lilly will join us to talk about a couple of thrilling college football playoff semis, with Michigan beating Alabama in overtime and Washington barely holding on against Texas. Vincent Goodwill of Yahoo Sports will also be here to discuss the Detroit Pistons' 28-game losing streak, how they snapped it, and the broader state of Detroit sports. And finally, in the final days of the Pac-12 conference, we'll replay one of our favorite segments from the recent past, an interview with then-UCLA players Otito Obanaya and Elisha Guidry about their attempts to reform the conference and all of college sports back in 2020. I'm in New Orleans, where I did not attend the Sugar Bowl, but did stay up late to watch the whole game on television. I am also the author of The Queen and the host of Six Whole Damn Seasons of One Year. Joining me from the football-friendly Pacific time zone is my Slate colleague and three-time Slow Burn host, Joel Anderson. Hello, Joel. Hey, Josh. You know, it felt late out here, too, even on the West Coast. So I was feeling for you people uh, on the other side of the country last night. The whole uh, fourth quarter of that game, I was like, man... It would be an hour later if I was back home in D.C. <laughs> those poor, poor, pitiful people. Um, but I was, I was glad to be in Central Time. Yeah, man, Central Time, I would like to think the best time zone in the country. I grew up in it. What is your ranking, power ranking of the four time zones? Central, Pacific, and Eastern. And I don't, I don't have enough data on the mountain time <laughs> mountain, zone. Mountain is an eighth place. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be second, it could be fourth, who knows. If you live in El Paso or Denver, let us know. How, what do you think about it? Mountain time zone gets absolutely no respect. Stefan Fatsis is off this week, but we should, and in fact, will note that this past weekend, for the first time in his long, and dare I say storied, Scrabble career, mm-hmm. he beat the person who, at the time they played, was North America's top-ranked player, never looking back, Joel, after his opening 96-point play of Kateau, meaning a hilly upland, including the divide between two valleys. The announcers really didn't, and you know, we can talk about this when Stefan gets back. Maybe he'll review the game tape. I don't think they gave him (laughs) enough credit for his brilliance. And, you know, they made it seem like the match all revolved around the greatness of Josh Sokol. Well, I'm here to tell you that Stefan is a scrabble great in his own right. And I just felt like his his genius that day really didn't get it to do props. If you want to evaluate for yourselves, the game, as Joel was alluding to, was broadcast on a live stream. We'll link to it in our show notes. We might even link the texts that we were sending to Stefan while we don't think that he had his phone nearby. But Joel was like definitely making sure that Stefan knew that the announcers weren't giving him his necessary props. Stefan is going to be way too polite. I, he's probably personal friends with these people. But, um, you know, we had to let him know how we felt. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, it's important to note that he also lost to Chloe the next day, too. So I'm sure he'd like for everybody to know that he trained up his uh, apprentice well enough that she kicked his ass. <laughs> next week, we are going to be back at full strength. Stefan will be here. Uh, though our publishing schedule will be atypical. We're going to be publishing the show 
on Tuesday, January 9th, so we can talk about next Monday's college football title game. And then on uh, the following Tuesday as well, January 16th, because of Martin Luther King Day. So mark your calendars. And finally, before we begin our first show of 2024, we want to thank our Slate Plus members for making this show possible. And this week, as we do every week, we got a bonus segment for our subscribers. Our guest, Vincent Goodwill of Yahoo Sports, is going to stick around to talk about John Morant's return to the NBA and to his team, the Memphis Grizzlies, and how he gave the New Orleans Pelicans the business. If you want to hear that and bonus segments on this and other Slate shows, get ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts and support us. You need to be a Slate Plus member. To sign up, go to slate.com slash hangupplus. That's slate.com slash hangupplus. On Monday in Pasadena, every college football writer who didn't get sent to New Orleans tweeted out a photo of the beautiful sunset at the Rose Bowl, just as it looked like the sun was setting on Michigan. But late in the fourth quarter, the Wolverines and their quarterback, J.J. McCarthy, converted a fourth down deep in their own territory, then proceeded to drive the field for a game-tying touchdown against Alabama. And then in overtime, running back Blake Corum ran the ball in to give Michigan a 27-20 lead. And when the Tide had the chance to tie it up on a fourth down of their own, this happened. That's Williams in motion, low snap, Melrose stopped! Michigan makes a stand and comes up with a milestone playoff victory. Joining us now is the guy who played all the instruments when the Michigan band struck up Hail to the Victors. It's Jim Harbaugh's lawyer, Connor Stallions' binoculars dealer, J.J. McCarthy's body man, the Alabama snapping coach, and the author of the book, The Hot Seat, and our Slate colleague, Ben Mathis-Lilly. Ben, welcome. We did it. (laughs) <laughs> we did it. Yeah. So I, I think my takeaway from that game, you know, I was watching with my wife. She's actually recently gotten into football uh, because uh, she's from Cincinnati and got like Joe Burrow fever. So she's watched like a lot of NFL games in the last few years. And her reaction to the game yesterday, the Michigan Alabama game was like, wow, these guys make a lot of mistakes, <laughs> which I think was kind of the story of that game, you know, and it's true. It's college football. It's not pro football. Uh, but even that clip you just shared, there was the low snap, good catch by the play-by-play at the time, seemed to influence that play. Obviously, Michigan, for those who watched, dropped, I think, every punt that it was possible to drop, trying to lose the game for themselves. But uh, in the end, in the end, they pulled it out. Joel, this was a game that Michigan dominated, but still looked at points like it was destined to lose. Ben referenced the drop punts. I mean, there was the potential there at the end for maybe the worst way to lose a game in history with that muffed punt at the end with that almost gifted Alabama a game-winning safety. Um, so what are your takeaways from a, a victory for Michigan that was dominant but also not at all dominant in, in other ways? I think there's a couple things. One is that so... We know everything about Michigan. Michigan has been one of the more dominant teams in the country all year long. Like they've been kind of a, and they're not, they've not been a wire to wire number one team because Georgia was that until they lost an SEC championship. But everybody seemed to acknowledge that they were one of those teams that was a cut above everybody all year long. And we also know that at least early in the year, there was talk that Nick Saban had lost it and that Alabama, this is probably the worst addition of a Crimson Tide team since maybe the 2018, the the year before they won their first national championship there. And yet and still, I could not bring myself to think that Michigan was actually going to beat Alabama until it actually happened. And so I think what happened in the game 
uh, at the Rose Bowl was that the Wolverines' win was sort of like the platonic ideal of what that victory might look like. And BML, you tell me if this is it. It's always been sort of the dream of Big Ten fans, like during this run of SEC supremacy, that their beef and their strength might overwhelm those like faster, more dynamic SEC programs. Like that was the way that you would counter program like all the, you know, all that dominance. And even though they've got like electric defensive linemen in the, in the South and in SEC rosters, but it was just like the way we do it is going to win with Midwest beef, you know? And Jim Harbaugh's construction of the program, sort of in the image of both Schimbuckler, is this. We're more man than you. We can impose our will. And that's kind of what happened. Like Blake Corum, an offensive line that's, you know, consistently been among the best in the country the past three years, just enough passing to keep the defense honest and crafty coaching to keep Bama off balance. And I mean, Michigan did not play well, right? Like we, we've said that, but they were clearly the better team, right? Like, and that was, I don't know if that was a surprise if we've been following the season, but to actually see it play out in the game was kind of a surprise, wasn't it? In a way, like... Yeah, I mean, I obviously I shared your sentiment going in. You know, like you, you can look at the computer numbers all you want, but you still realize you're you're playing Alabama in the playoff, and not a lot of teams beat them. And for it to happen like in that overtime, uh, you know, I think especially is when you saw. I think they gave it to Blake Corum twice, and he scored right. Like that was the whole overtime for them. And then on that last play, you know, as some people have pointed out, Alabama had a running back kind of going to the left who was maybe open on that last snap, you know, and then the low snap affected it too. But like what it looked like in the moment was just like, hey, all the Michigan's, def- you know, defenders just like bum rushed everybody, you know, like maybe it wasn't quite as simple as that, but that's what it looked like. And so, yeah, I think it was really satisfying to me because it, it, it got kind of both, it got kind of both parts of it. It was like that old school offensive line, defensive line domination, but also Michigan had some like some tricks up their sleeves maybe there was like a lot of misdirection, you know, some of the the biggest plays in the game maybe were, um, you know, those little passes to Blake Corum kind of sneaking out of the backfield. So it was just like, yeah, it was like what what a good uh, Midwestern football team should be in this in this day and age, which is, you know, uh, you know, using their advantage. Um, but also being smart enough to to realize that you actually can't just line up, you know, and run it down their throats. Like they knew that they weren't going to be able to go in and do that. And so one one other thing I wanted to talk about uh, with you guys is is you know as much as we talk about like the SEC speed and the talent advantage, one of the big plays in the game was Michigan's wide receiver running away from the Alabama secondary on that crossing route they scored on in the first half. And then you know Alabama, what do we think of in the Alabama, especially the last ten years? They're incredible wide receivers. But you didn't really see that in this game. Like you didn't see Alabama guys beating Michigan deep, you know, and Michigan's got a secondary of Will Johnson's a five-star cornerback. But other than that, it's not like a highly rated unit, but they were able to contain Alabama. And I'm curious what you guys think. Like it seemed like this year, more so than in any year in, in recent memory, the top talent teams are not showing up in the, you know, in the playoff or have, have lost, you know, have lost to teams like Michigan and Washington. I think Michigan and Washington are the 14th and 26th most talented teams, according to recruiting rankings. And so, like, what's go- what do you guys think is going on here? Like, why, why is this year, like, all of a sudden we're seeing these lower rated teams come in and dominate the kind of the Blue Bloods? Well, first of all, I need to say that behind me here in New Orleans, it sounds like they're doing some kind of lumberjack games. So if the listeners can hear that. That's what's going on. I will, um, to answer your question, I I think last year when Bryce Young was the quarterback of Alabama, their skill position players were even worse. And it's been strangely befuddling because these are five-star talents at receiver. Um, They brought in Jameer Gibbs, obviously, last year at running back, who is now killing it for the the Lions. So I, I think that was a good move on their part. But 
it just hasn't really showed up on the field for them, except for, you know, maybe Bond on fourth and 31 against Auburn. I mean, there have been moments, there have been flashes, and there is still this kind of Alabama mystique around, you know, the program where, like Joel said, I still, I didn't think they were going to lose either until they lost. But it just feels like with Michigan, you have a, a quarterback in McCarthy, you have a, uh, a coaching staff that is coherent on the same page um, that's been together for a while. You have, you know, Corum, you have the receivers, you have a, a team that's just kind of been together and feels like they know what they're doing. And, you know, I, I guess it's kind of like a classic thing in sports, Joel, right? Like you have a team that might be more talented. It's like Kentucky under Calipari. They have the best players every year and never win. And then you have a team that has some level of talent and that just seems like a better team and maybe just coheres. Bama has been on a run of development, retention, and success that is unprecedented in college football history. And it's unlikely that that run is going to last five years, let alone 15. So there's a natural erosion. Like, this was never a special team. Eventually, you're not going to have a Heisman caliber level quarterback. You're not going to have a first-round NFL running back. You're not going to have a first-round level wide receiver. Their lines aren't as great. Now, I don't think Michigan necessarily kicked ass up front so much as they confused them with all the stunts and twists early on, but it still was shocking that a hallmark of the last 15 years is that Saban teams are a blunt force instrument, and they beat the shit out of you, and eventually you cave in, and it was sort of shocking to see Michigan take the fight to them. Right. And so, of course, like, well, those bad snaps are are really the, the thing that's the most shocking. I mean, whether it's a Nick Saban team or a Bill Belichick team, you think of them nailing all of the little things. And, um, you know, Michigan missed an extra point, like on a, a bad snap. I mean, there were bad plays kind of all around by both teams. But this is the thing that's bedeviled Alabama all year. Like the reason they were in fourth and 31 against a bad Auburn team is because of a bad snap. And so the fact that they've gotten seemingly some of the big things wrong, like, and, and but also all these little things, that's what feels so unsaben like. Yeah. And I, th- I think part of that might be, you know, I was kind of like trying to figure, figure this out last night and, and circulating the question in my various uh, college football focused chats uh, <laughs> in groups. And I think one, you know, I don't know if there's like the data to back it up yet, but like one, one theory that was thrown out there is that like because of the transfer portal, um, maybe some of the depth that would be there at upper class depth for a team like Alabama is not there because those guys who, who might say, OK, I'm not seeing the field. I'm going to transfer out. You know, uh, those are the guys who you can put in when, like, your center forgets how to snap, for example, you know, or Alabama starting a, a true freshman at, at left or right tackle. I forget which. But, you know, so even though they do have the, the talent on paper, it's not necessarily the developed upper class talent that we've seen in recent years, as Joel alluded to. So that might be one thing that's going on. Whereas at Michigan, you know, uh, one thing that they have been able to do because of the kind of unusual continuity of the coaching staff and the fact that they, you know, these, these players are all part of, uh, the first teams to win the Big Ten in 20 years or whatever. So they have like, you know, guys are staying a lot, staying around at Michigan, uh, in a way that, you know, may, might not be true for some of the other top teams right now. You know, BMLs, Michigan fans are sort of defined by their just, I think, certitude that the other shoe is going to drop, right? Um, yeah. Do you believe 
Do you do you believe now? And also, I, a question I had for you, and I, I was sort of thinking, is this the best Michigan team of your lifetime? Well, I mean, overall, maybe, yeah. I mean, the best Michigan player of my lifetime is Charles Woodson, and then so it's hard for me to like it feels sacrilegious to say that any team is better than '97 when he was like actually the best player on all three phases of the game for Michigan. Like he played receiver too, something that other people might not remember because he didn't do that in the NFL. I mean, yeah, like top to bottom, as we're kind of mentioning, like, you know, when you said in the first in the first half, Michigan's blitzing Alabama and they're doing it with kind of like tricks, you know, like some some scheme stuff. You just go into the game thinking, all right, these coaches are good. The players are good. There's not like an area in which we have we have any weakness. And so like even going up against Washington, obviously, you know, Michael Penix and the receivers there are incredible. But like Michigan can say like. Yeah, we face guys at that level. Like we, these guys have faced C.J. Stroud and Marvin Harrison. You know, I, they might still lose. I'm not going into it thinking like, oh, they're you know they're toast. Like they have something to answer for every every kind of uh, you know opponent, basically. The player of the semifinals was very clearly Michael Penix. Just an unbelievable performance for Washington against Texas in the Sugar Bowl. Um, repeatedly making throws, maybe a dozen of them that were so perfectly placed that even the generally good coverage of the Texas cornerbacks was completely irrelevant. Roma Dunze, the, the wide receiver, is also just an amazing, amazing player. But to me, and, and I think even you, or perhaps especially you, Ben, would, would admit that Washington is such a fascinating and incredible story that I think has gotten overshadowed by everything going around Michigan with the sign stealing, with the fact that every journalist went to Michigan. You know, Washington, the fact that they have this coach, Kalen DeBoer, who comes in, immediately gets Michael Penix as a transfer within days of him taking that job. A roster that's less talented than um, Michigan's. A roster, a, a, a team that's won all of these close games. A team that, you know, maybe more than any other can legitimately play the nobody believed in us card after being you know, an underdog in all of these big games and coming out and winning all of them. That's the question that I have. Like, I understand how Michigan has has done this. Like, that is a storyline that that sort of makes sense to me, given their rise, given the um, continuity, given the fact that it's a legendary program. But Washington, Joel, if you had, you know, told me a couple of years ago, three or four years ago, that Washington in 2023 um, would be 0-12. Like, they've been 0-12. Like, th- this is a, a team that's had some very low lows. That's the part, the story, that that I think is more fascinating and maybe makes less sense as, as that Washington has won these games and found itself in the national title game. Yeah, you know, I had kind of come to a point where I had bought into the hype that there was not a chance, there was not a way for you know, the, the league formerly known as the Pac-12 to compete at this level outside of like U- USC. Like I said, okay, well, USC still has natural recruiting base. They can kind of get that thing queued up again. Washington, I was just like, well, it's just not going to be possible because they just don't have the athletes and they're kind of distant and, you know, they're just not going to be able to do it. And it, it's sort of shocking to me to see them kind of stitch this team together around Michael Penix uh, to do it. And I think that's really like a testament to development uh, and coaching, like you talked about Kalen DeBoer. Is it just me or does he strike you guys as maybe the most boring person alive? Wait, Kalen, like, I, just based on, based solely on his interviews, it's just like. If you hit him with your car, would you know who he was? <laughs> like, seriously. Like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, Kalen DeBoer, he'd have to wear Huskies, like, pullover or something, right? Great coach, great coach. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, and so BML, you, you, you mentioned 
you know, this, that, you know, you guys have faced C.J. Stroud or whatever. But And I agree that, like, it's 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 certainly possible that uh, Michigan could get a handle on Michael Penix and these great wide receivers. But the, the one thing that I kind of want to talk about, and you mentioned this, is, like, Michael Penix, to me, is just sort of a rebuttal. And this is following a weekend in which New England Patriots offensive coordinator was reportedly told Alabama QB Jalen Milrow he needed to change positions. And I just thought it was really important. Yeah, this was Bill O'Brien. When 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 Bill O'Brien was the Alabama OC, he said that to Yeah, Jalen he said Mill- this to Jalen Milro. And on a week, like in, in the same weekend, I love Milro, you know, he didn't play his best game. But Penix is sort of like a rebuttal to the idea that like black quarterbacks need to change positions. Like, cause often like QB the black QBs don't get like the development and patience early enough in their careers to get to stick it through. And so to see like Michael Penix. And I know where he's from in Tampa. Like, I worked down there, and I used to cover those teams. I know that there's, like, not a lot of expensive private QB coaching for, for guys like that. And for him to thrive in this moment, it was really touching to me because I was like, oh, it's like I'm happy to see somebody take a chance on a guy, watch him develop over the years. We saw him play at Indiana in that COVID year and to, like, thrive like this on the national stage. It was just I, I was really moved by that. And I think that he's sort of a different guy. Like, I mean, obviously, C.J. Stroud is a great quarterback. Uh, you can see that in the NFL. But I don't know. This is something about these guys. And, Josh, you'll probably be offended. I heard people keep saying, hey, Michael Penix and these receivers kind of remind me of LSU 2019. And I was like, I don't, I don't know about that. But um, they're, they're, they're pretty damn imposing. Yeah, I mean, you you look at 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 Penix versus versus Stroud, and like the thing that you know jumps out to me is like a thing that strikes fear in my heart is just like he's able to get away. You know, like I I don't know if Washington's offensive line. I think they won the Joe Moore Award, but like you know, I don't know if it's one of the greatest offensive lines ever. And Texas was getting some rush on him, but you know, it seemed like every play I watched. Like he just slips, you know, he slips to the left or the right or whatever, and then he's throwing like thirty yards, and it's a perfect spiral, you know. So that's definitely, yeah, that's definitely something that that I don't think anyone else in the in the country has equaled this year. That ability. Curious if Josh thinks now, in retrospect, uh, that that Penix should have won the Heisman Trophy. I mean, Ooh. you know, you know talk about a guy uh, leading his team to victory in these in these games almost single handedly. Yeah, I first I wanted to give one quick shout out. I did a reading with this guy, Jason Reed of ESPN, wrote a, a book called "The Rise of the Black Quarterback" that gets into a lot of this stuff uh, and and you know countless anecdotes similar to the one that you're mentioning about Bill O'Brien uh, going up until even recently. I think that you know if I'm recalling correctly, you know he talks about Kyler Murray uh, and Lamar Jackson as being like. The guys who finally proved to a lot of people around the NFL that you can have a black quarterback. And, you know, like those are guys who are still playing. So, you know, like the, the it's not ancient history. And they still made Lamar Jackson or they still asked him to run routes at the NFL combine, by the way, too. Like it's like this is within living memory. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like it's still going on. And and I, I think one one element of it uh, is that, you know, uh, we're, we're talking we, we mentioned Kalen DeBoer, you know, Michigan's 14th in talent, Washington's 26th. One thing that this emphasizes uh, with him bringing in Penix and then the way Harbaugh was able to kind of handle J.J. McCarthy to kind of like give him playing time as a true freshman uh, just goes to show just like how important it is to just be like a quarterback, not a quarterback guru even, but just like a quarterback 
manager uh, and counselor, you know, like your relationship with, with top quarterbacks is like the most important thing for you as a head coach. And so it's, it's not necessarily true anymore um, as teams like Alabama and Ohio State are finding out that you can just stockpile like five guys in the quarterback room and, you know, the next guy up is going to be brilliant. And so I don't know if that's something that Washington's going to be able to sustain. That'll be really interesting to see moving forward. Uh, if I were a quarterback, I'd probably want to play for Kalen DeBoer. But that's something that, that like, is really important in the, in the portal era, uh, in the NIL era, and that's something that both of these teams have, have managed to hit on uh, this year. Yeah, my final thoughts are with Jaden Daniels, like the counterfactual is if he had you know, been on Washington's team, they would have won all of these games by so many more points. Like, would they really have <laughs> had that Heisman moment? Also, um, you know, we were two plays away from this entire conversation being about what is the worst way to lose Oof. on like a game-ending safety on a muff punt or yeah. on your star running back on a play when you could have kneeled getting hurt and stopping yeah. the clock in a game where you should have just been able to run the clock. I mean, that was that would have been a tragedy if Washington yeah. had lost the game after Dylan Johnson got hurt on that play. And, you know, obviously it's a huge factor going into that game that um, their star running back might not be able to play. But Ben, I think final thought from you that I'm interested in is like, obviously, um, you know, there's one sense in which this victory against Alabama and all of the like post Connor Stallions victories are great for Michigan in that it shows that um, they're not winning these games because of they, they know all the signals. I mean, one of the big storylines going into the game was like Alabama forbidding its players from watching game film. At like because they were so worried about you know security, but I think another argument that Michigan potentially, if they win a national title and just being in the national title game, that it's going to bring so much attention onto the program and so much reporting around it that this you know sign stealing story is it's going to give it more life and more legs. There's going to be more digging into what exactly went on, and so it'll be interesting, you know, a month from now, a year from now. Um, how all of that shakes out. And I'm curious kind of what your initial thoughts are on that. Well, first I would note that uh, apparently Connor Stallions was in Los Angeles and at the game. Mm. Uh, so Michigan apparently uh, not um, sweating too much the optics of that or else like he's just gone rogue and cannot be controlled at all. Stallions being the, the former Michigan staffer accused of uh, orchestrating an elaborate uh, and uh, possibly illegal sign-stealing, uh, sign-taping operation. I kind of forgot about that stuff uh, until you just brought it up right now. <laughs> so I think like the predominant attitude, you know, I think the predominant attitude of the program is going to be that, like, as they say, um, it flags fly for, forever. And so, you know, if they win this championship and then it it increases the amount of scrutiny that the NCAA is, is putting on the program and maybe they penal- pay a penalty down the line, you know, whatever. Um, but, yeah, I know, I, th- I think that, I think that the, the the nice thing about this game was that uh, you know from the perspective from the perspective of a homer that like it just reminded you like that there are like a lot of good players on the team and you know and they were able to go out and uh, like make huge like make huge plays we haven't talked about like the tip pass that Roman Wilson caught on that last drive um, so it, it is nice from a sentimental perspective uh, given everything that's going on to uh, like actually have like kind of a nice moment for the team and the players. And I think despite what, you know, the haters and the jackals in the national press, such as yourself, might try to impose on this team, I think that's going to be my memory of it. Michigan, Washington um, next Monday night for the national championship. Michigan, Washington next season, Big Ten Conference regular season game. We will be uh, looking forward to both. Ben Mathis-Lilly, thank you 
as always, for your uh, even-handed and dispassionate perspective. Thank you, guys. Up next, Vincent Goodwill of Yahoo Sports on the Detroit Pistons and their epic losing streak. On Saturday in Detroit, a surprisingly lively crowd of 18,000 showed up expecting to witness history. The Pistons were one loss away from breaking the league record for consecutive defeats. If they simply did that that night, what they had done in 28 previous games, the Pistons would be sole owners of a mark held by the process era of Philadelphia Sixers over the 2014 and 15 and 2015 and 16 seasons. But Kate Cunningham and company had to screw it all up. Here's a clip. Hey, look at the pictures. I want you to see them. Some of them are on their knees, exhausted. It didn't come easy. All the way down to the absolute final set. And all streaks eventually come to an end. It's more moving than beating Shaq and Kobe, huh? Uh, so Cunningham finished with 30 points and 12 assists in Detroit's 129 to 127 win over Toronto to improve the Pistons record to three and 29. It was the team's first win since the third game of the season on October 29th when they were two and one. But the Pistons are maybe as bad as any NBA team has ever been. And that's actually in stark contrast to the football teams of the Detroit area, which are both having their best seasons in a very long time. But to get some perspective on what's going on to Detroit and fans of these teams, we've invited back Detroit area native and current resident Vincent Goodwill, who is an NBA writer for Yahoo Sports, a host on Sirius XM NBA radio, and a host of the Good Word with Goodwill podcast, which is part of the Ball Don't Lie Network. Vinny, my man, thanks for coming on to talk with us today, bro. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Well, now, I know you're a Wolverines fan, and we'll give you a little chance to stunt uh, here in a little bit at the end. But first, as the NBA expert here, why are your Pistons this damn bad? Look, if you're going to give me ownership of a team, don't give me ownership of a team <laughs> that is historically bad. Like, can, can I get, like, a mediocre franchise like the Brooklyn Nets? You're going to call them historically bad, man? I mean, see, is that where we're at now? Is that where we're at with the Pistons now, seriously? Historically bad? I mean, the record says they're historically bad. You said they're as bad as in, any team in NBA history, so I guess they might be. Why are they bad? I think it's never one move. Like, whenever something gets to the point of historically good or historically bad, it's never as simple as drafting Stephen Curry or drafting Michael Jordan and never as bad as, oh, we drafted Kwame Brown. It literally means it's a series of unfortunate events that have, like, the worst-case scenario has popped up every single time. It's been some bad draft picks. It's been some bad trades. And it's been the league moving from underneath your feet while you're trying to rebuild and not getting in front of it. Usually in the NBA, or I don't say usually, but in today's NBA, Joel, the league moves faster than ever, quicker than ever. It used to be a big man's game. Now it's a three-point game. Now it's also a swingman's game. They lack a lot of basic necessities that NBA teams have. This is a team that was built without any athleticism, a team that was built without any good shooting, and a team that was built without a lot of rim protection. And that is impossible to do <laughs> intentionally if you're trying to win games. And they came out before this season started. 
and said that we want to win games. We are not necessarily done with the rebuild, but we want to see significant improvement. They've taken significant steps back. Yeah, I think the thing that's so remarkable about this team, Vinny, is that when teams lose this much in the NBA in recent years, it's because they're doing it on purpose. And like you said, the Pistons announced going into the season that that wasn't what they were aiming for this year, that they were trying to win games. And so it's not like the process sixers. There's talent on this team. Cade Cunningham, a good player. Jaden Ivey's got a lot of potential. Duran, the young center, got a lot of talent. And so to have pieces that um, they acquired on purpose, that they put together on purpose to try to be good and have the team be this bad, doesn't that have to be a failure of the front office and of coaching more than the guys on the floor? I mean, obviously the players have some blame, like they can't be doing that great if they lost 28 in a row, but it's hard to think of an example of a team that was so ill-conceived by the people that were putting it together. I mean, failure has a bunch of owners, right? Like nobody can run from this. If you are, even if you are a player and you've underachieved, like that's something that you have to own. But when you look at the way that this team was built and they have a dearth of centers in a league that maybe doesn't require you to have traditional centers, but you just need to have players who fill roles. You need to have a guy who's an athlete who can get on the open floor. You need to have a guy that can block shots, protect the room and rebound. And you need to have guys that can shoot at a high clip because this is more of a three-point shooting game than ever. And it doesn't seem like that they have players who fit those roles. You have players who, from an optimistic standpoint, you could say, okay, maybe James Wiseman, who was the second pick in the draft a few years ago from Golden State, maybe he can turn things around here. They had Marvin Bagley, a center out of Duke, who was the second pick in the draft. In the same draft as Luka Doncic, who's been trying to figure things out. They've had a bunch of lottery picks, a bunch of lottery tickets on the back end that they're trying to say, maybe we can rehabilitate these players. Maybe we can have a fertile ground for these players to grow and fulfill their pedigree because we can't go out and get the big name free agents. We're Detroit. We're not a big market. We don't want to overpay. We want to keep our flexibility and not be tied down to bad contracts. So that means you take chances on young players, on rookie deals who hopefully can outperform their pedigree or outperform where they've been. And they wrote snake eyes on almost every one. And Kay Cunningham is a guy who may not drive winning, but he can influence winning. But the problem is there's no pieces next to him that can actually help him augment influencing winning. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because I remember when Cade went number one, I wanted the Rockets to have him so bad. Like, I thought, I was like, oh, man, we screwed up. Not that I, I was disappointed with Jalen, but I, I liked Cade that much. So has he lived up to that number one pick billing so far? Well, if you think about it, no player from this draft has made an all-star team yet. And usually there's like one supernova in every draft class that plays above his head that a a franchise can say, you know what, he's a star and we can wrap everything around him. There's not even anybody in the draft class. There's players in the draft class that you're like, you know what, in a couple of years, they're really going to figure it out. For Kay Cunningham, he missed almost all of last year 
with a leg injury and that took away so much time and development and experience so now essentially he's in his second year even though he is 22 years old and he's he was a candidate to play on the olympic team and like you said joe the first pick in the draft he's still going around the league for the first and second time in his first year that was a totally different roster he missed last year and now you're trying to work your body back into playoff shape or play or regular season shape and figuring out this team on the on the back end. Surprisingly, Joe, he's played really, really well. And when you have a losing streak like this, you have a lot more attention on you than if you were a regular bad team. So in a way, it's actually opened eyes to how good he is because he's actually stepped forward, taking a lot of accountability, even when he hasn't had to as a spokesperson. And he's been someone who's kept this team into games where maybe they otherwise wouldn't be in. So this NBA season, um, has given us a great example of a team that's worked to rebuild to per- perfection in the Oklahoma City Thunder. I mean, they're so good this year and seem to have such a promising future with Shea and, and Chad and all those guys that, like, I was looking back, Joel, a couple segments we'd done, you know, in recent years. They, like, lost a game by 73 points. I, I mean, <laughs> that stuff kind of gets wiped from your memory. But there were some really, as a Thunder fan, there were some, like, really low moments in there. And the Pistons have had all those kinds of low moments too, Vinny, but this is the kind of dark side of a teardown, right? Like, I I think there's this belief and it's, you know, the Sixers have had their their ups and downs, obviously, but this idea that in the NBA, you've got to tear down, get these high picks. And that's like really the only way to um, rebuild, especially if you're a small market club. But, you know, what the Pistons show is that maybe as a, as a fan, those low moments, there's not necessarily a payoff. Like this is what year five of the rebuild, and it's like they're back in year zero. And and so, is that an argument against the kind of teardown process model, um, or does it just show you need to have the right GM? You need to make sure you get the number one pick in a year where Wimby or uh, you know LeBron is coming out, rather than you know a guy like Cade who's good but not a supernova, like you said. It's an argument, Josh, that if you're choosing to go down this path, that you are accepting the responsibility of having to be perfect just to get back to a 500 level. Like you can make all of the right draft picks. And if one player is not a supernova or a superstar, a rising boat who lifts all tides, you'll be in a similar position, if not worse position, than if you were a mediocre team with veteran players with not a lot of upside. The thing is, if you are just depending on the draft and you have you don't build through the trade market, you don't build through free agency, you leave yourself no margin for error. The one thing Oklahoma City did do that was different than everybody else was they got Paul George and they traded him for a guy named Shea Gilgis Alexander, so who helped him augment a little bit. You had Russell Westbrook and you traded him for Chris Paul, who helped aid in that transition. And then when you could trade Chris Paul, you can get more draft picks and more players. And their player development program has been better than everybody else's. So while the draft has been a huge piece of it, it hasn't been the only piece of it. And so much of Oklahoma City has been focused on the future people were not able to see the modest gains that they were making in the present, like you said, because they they lose a game by 73 points. But last year they made the play-in tournament, hardly anybody noticed, and now they're a team that is second in the Western Conference because of all of those small gains made along the way. When you tear it down and you get losing in your building, it is really, really hard to get out. Over the summer, 
Well, it wasn't the summer. It was late spring. The Pistons brought in Monty Williams, like not even a month after he'd been fired in Phoenix. And, you know, Josh is familiar with Monty Williams' work uh, as a Pels fan. And he was made the second highest paid coach in the league at like $100 million over eight years. Uh, obviously, I mean, you don't want to say that that was a bad investment already because we're only 32, you know, 33 games to the season. But what the hell happened? Like, what is he doing uh, as a part of all this? Well, I think you have to look at your franchise and you have to be honest about where your franchise is in that moment. Remember at the beginning, we said this franchise thought it was going to be ready to run when it was still pretty much crawling or trying to get back to a crawl space. Monty Williams is a great coach for a veteran team, for a team that's trying to win, for a team that is mature. And while he can help young teams nudge them along, you have to be at a certain point of having its own experience. This team didn't have its own level of experience, let alone positive experience, for Monty Williams to be able to come in and help them and help mature them along the way. And this was like a third try that they had gotten at Monty Williams throughout this coaching cycle. He had said, no, I got some personal things going on. I don't want to coach this year. I think I'm going to take it off. And they were relentless. And then sometimes when the money comes, you say, you know what? I'm going to take the money and we're going to figure this out. It stems from the franchise wanting to make a splash and thinking that the splash is the right decision as opposed to sometimes making the prudent one and realizing where we are isn't where we're always going to be. I want to transition, Vinny, into kind of broader Detroit conversation. And one of my maybe least favorite cliches in sports is this idea that teams take on the character of their city. It's like, we're from Philly. They're gritty and tough like us. We're from New Orleans. They're gritty and tough like us. We're from Detroit. So you know where I'm going with this. But um, (laughs) talk to us about Dan Campbell and the Lions and a a fan base, um, an, an NFL fan base, that has been just absolutely desperate for any signs of anything, um, you know, positive going back gener- multiple generations, I, I guess, of, of fandom. I mean, we don't need to f- fixate on the refs uh, at the end of that, that Cowboys game, but uh, or, or maybe we do. But just, you know, give us a little sense of what the city is feeling about the Lions, about Dan Campbell, about this franchise and kind of where they're at after all these years in the wilderness. As a disclaimer, I need to go back and tell you that on July 27, 1999, I completely disowned the Detroit Lions because Barry Sanders retired <laughs> and I'd had enough. I had enough of toxic relationships. And if there was one relationship, I could easily give up. I was 14 years old. I was a freshman in high school going into my sophomore year. And I was like, you know, what? I don't need this misery in my life. So the last 20 plus years as the being, instant recall of that date is very telling. Absolutely. Look, it was it was a day that crushed me. But at the same time, it was very liberating. So when they went, you would, you didn't even make it to Calvin Johnson, by the way. Like, you, you, no. <laughs> Who is that? Who is that guy? Why? No, is that man? no, I liked Calvin Johnson. If he was on my fantasy team, I rooted for him, but it was not tied <laughs> to any of the team's fortunes. And I am so glad that I did. I am so glad that I did not have the next two <laughs> decades of misery because these fans have been starved. And there's a hole that some cities have with pro football that they don't have anywhere else, per se. And I think it's because the Lions have never delivered anything their playoff win in my lifetime was january 5th 1992 they beat the dallas cowboys 38 to 6 and john madden that day on cbs said the future of the nfc is right here detroit (laughs) and dallas 
He was right about one of those teams. <laughs> and the other team was the Detroit Lions, okay? And was Eric been, Kramer the quarterback? Yeah, I was going to say, was this an Eric Kramer that team? That was the Eric Kramer team, right? That was the Mike Utley year where Mike Utley had been paralyzed oh, and, and, the, yeah. and everybody galvanized around that, right? And since then, it's been bad coaches, bad ownership, bad general managers. It's just been bad all the way around. Where the Lions got this right, Dan Campbell was a member of that 0-16 team in 2008. He was like a backup tight end. And at first glance, you think of him as a meathead. You think of him as someone who's not very sophisticated. You think of someone who epitomizes Detroit. We're going to just go ram our heads into this brick wall until we knock it down. And he gave the whole kneecap speech when he was first hired that sort of leaned into that. But I think what we missed was, or what he didn't really accentuate, was how smart he is. He's hired a lot of exceptional assistant coaches. Yes, they've been daring, but they've been smart with their risk-taking. They went off and, and traded Matthew Stafford, got Jared Goff, and they've actually empowered Jared Goff in ways that nobody believed that he would be able to excel without Sean McVay. So while, yes, the Dallas Cowboys play from Saturday night looked, stuck out like a sore thumb in a way, it, that's basically the epitome of Dan Campbell. I thought they should have kicked the field goal after the first penalty, after the second penalty, after things just went wrong. But for whatever reason, Campbell just kept going for it. And I think in a way, it was a smart play. And I think in a way, it could actually help the franchise in the long run. Just don't expect me to root for him. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did, did you, so you, you don't root for them. This is not your team. No. Did you? So did you it's think like they you got the Jacksons, Joel? I mean, no, I have. Look, I didn't have to give them up because I never, I never started on that narcotic. <laughs> uh, but so you're not a fan. Did you think they got a raw deal on that two point conversion on Saturday, though? I believe that they tried to be slick, right? It's funny though because you're talking about how smart Dan Campbell is. I think he outsmarted the referees. Like he, they were trying to be to be tricky. Yeah, because look, when you're trying to be tricky, especially when you're trying to set up a, a tackle as eligible and it's announced, like I wonder if Dan thought, okay, you know what? Maybe they're not going to pay attention to who's eligible when it's announced because the referee always announces number 68, number 70 is eligible. And then you sort of shift your defense ever so slightly to make sure that that spot is covered. When it was announced, to my knowledge, it said number 70 was eligible. And then the play ensued, and nobody's thought of Taylor Decker sliding to the back of the end zone. I do think that Dan Campbell was trying to be a little too smart. The problem is, why you got to be too smart against Mike McCarthy? We've all seen his movies. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, Joel promised that we were going to let you um, brag on the Wolverines. Yeah, I, I, so, so Vinny's a friend, and I just got to say, so we were texting a little bit during the game yesterday, and uh, whatever narcotic he passed up in the lines, he definitely just, like, <laughs> transferred it over to, 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 to the Wolverines. So, yeah, go ahead and talk your shit, man. Go ahead. Well, I will say this. Because you give up certain things, you almost have to lean into somewhere else. You know what I mean? And rather than lean into alcohol... I was like, you know what? I'm a I'm a Michigan fan. I grew up on Charles Woodson and Desmond Howard doing the Heisman pose. I this is this is potentially healthy. I spent that entire second half in a damn defensive stance, like I'm a linebacker. Okay, <laughs> I would not move because I was so stressed out, and I didn't have the confidence that Jim Harbaugh could beat Nick Saban. I was pleasantly surprised. They literally they outplayed Alabama 
from the start of the game. They were clearly the better team. They just kept shooting themselves in the foot with all of their mistakes and miscues. And that's something that you actually don't do in the Rose Bowl. That's not actually something that you do against Nick Saban. But they almost managed to outplay themselves. Like you talk about outsmart themselves. Michigan outplayed themselves. From the moment of that initial interception with J.J. McCarthy basically threw it to God knows where, and Alabama wound up getting the ball back, scoring. Michigan outscored Alabama 27-14 to from that point on. To me, that's domination. And luckily, Alabama played right into Michigan's hands. I will say, I want no part of Michael Penix Jr. next week. Zero parts. So do you have hope? Oh, I have to have hope. I mean, look, 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 we knocked down the dragon, okay? I'm from a Michigan era where all I wanted to do was beat Michigan State because they're in their backyard, beat Ohio State because why not? I wasn't thinking about a college football playoff. But now that we're here, and who knows what's going to happen with Jim Harbaugh, the NCAA posse, and maybe even the NFL, you might as well win it while you got the chance. Okay. Okay. I, I, I'm glad to hear. We'll, we'll, we'll revisit this. I'm sure we'll circle back on this at a certain point. Also, we're going to revisit you in the Slate Plus bonus segment to talk about the Disappointment Bowl in New Orleans, not the Sugar Bowl, the Disappointment Bowl, which features Josh's favorite NBA team. Uh, we'll let you know which one that is when we, that segment starts. But until then, Vinny, my man, thanks so much for coming by today, bro. I appreciate y'all, man. Thanks again. Up next. We're rerunning one of our favorite segments for 2020. Like I said at the top of the show, next week we'll be back to our usual three brand new segments. But now, while we're a bit hither and thither, we wanted to re-up a conversation that we had three years ago when the sports world was on pause and a group of athletes from the Pac-12 conference were pushing for a bunch of major reforms. I'm going to shut up in a second and let Joel read his introduction from August 2020. But listening back, it's fascinating to hear how much has changed, like Three years ago, college athletes couldn't get name, image, and likeness deals. That didn't exist until 2021. And also, I don't think any of us thought the Pac-12 conference would, as of 2024, cease to exist. Okay, enough with the preamble, um, but we'll be back at the end of the segment to update you on what our guests are up to now. Let's be honest. It's been a few years since the Pac-12 conference had a real impact on the national college football conversation. Not anymore. On Sunday, more than 400 players in the Pac-12 published a list of 17 demands under the hashtag WeAreUnited. They range from simple requests, like health protections during the pandemic, to more ambitious ones, like 50% of the conference's football revenue to be distributed among the players. If those demands aren't met, the player said, they are prepared to set out a fall camp in any game scheduled for this fall or next spring. Today on the show, we have two members of the group, both from UCLA, Elisha Gidry, a rising sophomore defensive back from Long Beach, California, and Otito Obonia, a rising junior defensive tackle from Houston. Thanks for coming on with us this morning, Elisha and Otito. I guess the first question is, how did this group and the list of demands come together? Um, you know, it was something that, you know, we, we always knew, um, I think individually and, you know, just team-wise, uh, that this is a sentiment that most people felt. 
Um, you know, it, we, we were just waiting for an opportunity to get to get this whole thing going. And I, this started with, you know, with some of, our, some of the guys from Cal who um, used this as an opportunity to um, to demand, you know, change, you know, and, and, and try to try to really get something done here. And um, by, I guess you could say by, by any means necessary. Um, and, and we kind of deemed this to be very necessary in this, in this moment of time, long overdue. And this is something that, you know, with the hard work of some of those guys who, who led this, who led this thing in the beginning and, uh, you know, kind of just relentless efforts. And because we've heard, we've heard people, you know, you know, try to tell us that, you know, it's not going to work and, you know, things like this and kind of just keeping you know, our, you know, putting our heads down and um, getting to work with this. And then, you know, just with Zoom calls, it was really Zoom that allowed us to do this whole thing and kind of being in a pandemic because, uh, you know, otherwise it'd be very hard to coordinate a movement, you know, this, this big uh, in, in normal time. So, um, in a way, I, I kind of think, you know, that the, you know, kind of thankful that we had a pandemic, you know, of course, you know, it's been destructive in, in, you know, in various ways, but it's also given us this opportunity to do this in the way we've done it. Yeah. Also, if I might add, I feel like just the the social movement that, or the, the civil rights movement really that's going on in our country also inspired. I feel like there's a lot of inequalities that people are noticing, like people are being awakened to seeing some of the things that goes on in this world. And I feel like College football has many of them as well. Just kind of the the big pushback and kind of putting guys at risk with the COVID, you know, I feel like just not really addressing the elephant in the room with the, I mean, the season on the horizon, you know, I feel like guys kind of, I mean, guys have the thoughts, you know, guys, guys want to, I mean, we, the, the Cal guys reached out to people in the conference, kind of got their thoughts and that's kind of how the ball got rolling. So I feel like just, I feel like this movement kind of mirrors the civil rights movement in the country as well. Elisha, there are 17 demands on the list, as Joel mentioned. Um, what are kind of the top line ones as far as you're concerned? What are the ones that you want folks to really be aware of? For me personally, I feel like they're all important. I mean, definitely the the player's safety with the COVID and ensuring that if a player decides to opt out, that his eligibility is honored and that um, he is to come back next year safely and not lose his status on the team as well, as well as the different things with like the uh, getting insurance for players when they finish playing because football takes a toll on the body and the mind. And I feel like once the player is done, they're kind of, they're kind of just kicked out. They're kind of just thrown in the world without, I mean, not a lot of guidance. And they did put a lot of that, a lot into this football basket. So, you know, they're kind of, they kind of don't really have an idea of what to do and they're kind of they might have some bruises and they might be affected mentally so just kind of having that as well as i feel like the name image, image and likeness is very important because players players deserve to be able to create wealth for themselves if with this sport i feel like a lot of players come from uh, lower income homes a lot of players have struggles that they have to go with and football is kind of their way out you know so just kind of having an opportunity to be able to affect their families and affect their communities and people around them with their sport, even if they don't make it to the NFL is very important. Yeah. Otito, I was going to follow up on that by saying the demand that uh, that's gotten a lot of attention, of course, is asking for 50% of revenue from the conference to be directed toward players. I mean, realistically, there's no way that the PAC 12 leaders are going to agree to that um, immediately. So it does feel like, by asking it, you're bringing this out into the open. The idea that athletes want 
um, are, are aware of the inequities here and that we've got to move toward some system that helps compensate them in some way. Is that how you view it or um, are the ambitions higher among the group? That's exactly how we view it. I think when you exploit a group of people for this amount of time, this is kind of what you get. They had their opportunity to fix this, multiple opportunities, and they've kind of denied even trying. And one thing we as a group aren't willing to accept is um, the idea that it's not possible. Uh, you know, this is this is a country who was brought up upon working hard and um, doing the impossible. And, you know, there are ways to get it done. And there's a, there's a number of plans that are being set in place. Another number of ways we can come uh, to the Pac-12 and I'm giving them ideas, but you know, the ultimate thing at the end of the day, you know, in regards to that 50% revenues, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's ambitious and it's high and it's asking a lot, but you know, if you want to put us in the real world, which is the real world is what we are. And I don't think we're exempt from reality here. Um, we live in this country just like everybody else. And, and in regards to name, image, and likeness, um, you know, it, it, why should we be the only citizens in this country who are denied making money off of who we are and our brand? And why is it that, um, a, you know, a, a kid at, at UCLA can, you know, you know, be on a musician team and go perform and make a couple hundred bucks off of their name, image, and likeness? And maybe they might even be on scholarship. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to athletes, it's a whole different story. So, you know, that argument from that, you know, the whole principle of it, you know, alone, um, definitely, you know, kind of angers people because I don't see where the school loses money there. I don't see where the reallo reallocation of funds is there. So, you know, it's good that it's in, in, it's in progress, but it, it definitely brings up the question, why did it take so long? You know, why were they trying to deny this for, for ind individuals for, for a very long time? And, then, and I think that's where that social justice kind of comes in, right? When you deny a group of people certain, you know, rights, um, you start to wonder why you're doing it. And so that's kind of how we've paralleled this entire movement with the social justice movement. I want to ask you, and this is for either one of you guys, a little more than a month ago, before even the United We Stand movement, UCLA itself published its own list of demands, the football players published their own list of demands related to coronavirus protections, right? So there was obviously like an activist streak within the team already. And I just was curious to know, where is the team with that? Does that sort of been subsumed by this larger movement, the United We Stand movement? Or is the team still pursuing these listed demands related to that earlier ask about a month ago? Um, I, you know, I forgot to mention, you know, about when you asked about the start of this movement, you know, one thing those cow guys told us is that they saw our letter um, to our university. They saw what we published and, and that's and they kind of took that lead from us. Um, so, you know, that, that was cool to see that. And, and in regards to where, where we're at now, you know, for the most part, we're, you know, we're doing well um, in terms of guaranteeing COVID protections and doing everything our, our university in their power can do for us. And, and we're taking a very conservative approach um, to uh, getting back to play and co competition, you know, if, if that's even feasible. But, you know, our biggest thing, you know, I, I think as a university and an apartment was making sure the players are safe. And they've echoed that throughout the, the department and throughout the system. I think uh, when people ask for further COVID things, uh, it, it's it's higher than it's up. It's it's much higher than UCLA. It has you know this is above UCLA. It's above any one conference or any one you know school. It's above any one person or any one coach or uh, AD. It's a conference thing, and the conference has the power to get some of these things done. As you as you've seen, um, you know the NCAA and the conference aren't necessarily as um, you know conjoined as you as one may think, and a lot of times they work um, you know separately in a lot of these a lot of these matters. Yeah, kind of going off what Otito said, just 
I mean, I feel like the cow guys kind of saw the things that we were asking and they just stopped themselves like, okay, like we really don't, we don't necessarily have things like that. Like we don't have the same type of protection. And that's kind of something we want because we feel like um, if we're taking this risk, coming back to school and trying to participate in this game, we kind of want to be protected as well. So I feel like just kind of seeing that and wanting to know, okay, like, is this, is this how things are going at Oregon state? Is this how things are going at Washington? Just kind of, Asking guys around kind of kind of got, I guess that's kind of what got the ball going, you know, because, I mean, at the end of the day, we all love football. We all spend to- so much time playing, you know, since we were kids. And we want to do that as safe as possible, especially during this pandemic. So I feel like just, I mean, asking around kind of is what got everybody started and kind of got us all connected. And then we realized that there were more issues than just with the COVID-19 precautions. So that's kind of what brought us to forming the group. So I think it's important for folks listening to this to understand how kind of amazing and unusual it is what you guys are doing, even doing this interview. Like there was a story recently about the University of Iowa. They don't even let their players be on social media. I mean, the amount of control at these programs about what they allow you guys to say, what they allow you guys to to represent and do in public, it's like so restrictive. And so the fact that you guys are talking to us about this, the fact that you put this message out, it's for college sports and for college football. This is an enormous deal. And we've already seen, like there are kind of varying reports about what's going on at Washington State in your conference about potential repercussions for players there for joining this movement and for speaking out. And so are you guys at all concerned about... um, potential repercussions from UCLA? And are you aware of the kind of power imbalance? I mean, your coach, Chip Kelly, was an NFL coach. He's a multi, multi-millionaire. Um, and you guys are, you know, you could have your scholarships taken away, potentially. Yeah, I, I think that's something that you know, a lot of people consider when, when they're joining this movement. I think you know, when you jo- try to join something um, with this magnitude, you kind of get the idea of what, what, you're, what you're getting yourself into and you kind of uh, make amends with that. Um, uh, with the with the consequences of what you're what you're doing, but I think ultimately I'm at peace with myself any anyway any regardless. You know, of course I'd love to keep my scholarship and you know, you know stay on the team, but that's not something that you know our coach or our administration has ever echoed to us. They've never threatened us in that manner, and and I don't think they will. You know, it's been relatively positive, and and we haven't seen any type of you know type of repercussion or retaliation from um, from anybody from our school, and, and it hurts to see. Um, that type of stuff being exemplified at Washington State, because you tell people to stand up for what they believe in, 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 in this world, and you know when you want to when you want to support something, I think you should have the freedom to do it. And, and in regards to you know speaking out and um, you know holding your tongue on a lot of these things, I think you know that's where the conferences and the universities and the college football as a whole gains their control over individuals, because you start to feel a certain way after you're done with football. When you're when you're in this system and you feel silenced, you feel like you can't say anything, and that, and that takes a toll on you. Um, you know, it definitely takes a toll on you mentally, and it's taken a toll on me until I kind of had a realization of you know who I am and who I want to be uh, in this world, and 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 that's not somebody who, who's silenced or um, who feels like they can't be who they are um, because of what I'm doing. You know, I don't think that's what we sign up for. That's, that doesn't say that in our um, you know letter of intent, or it doesn't say that anywhere. So. It's not necessarily something that I think it's just a flaw of the system, and um, it's something that we're trying to correct. And you know, 
you shouldn't bar anybody from, from you know, freedom of speech. They, they should be able to say what they want without feeling like they may get cut or, you know, that they may get blackballed by their team or their coach or whoever that, you know, that person may be. So, and, and that's why that Washington State situation is very um, significant in our eyes, you know, in this movement. And we're well aware of, um, you know, what's going on and we're, we're trying to do the best we can to help those guys out there. Yeah, just following up on that, like, I feel like if for real change to come, you know, you kind of got to put yourself out there. And that's something that even I know, I know a lot of guys in the group and even myself kind of had to battle, like, what what's the worst case scenario, you know? And that's kind of something that you think something always in the back of your mind. But for me, I came to peace that if if I have to be sacrificed for to 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 have a greater movement come, then that's something I'm OK with, you know, if I can if I got to sit out to help bring the change for my children or my friend's children that are to come or the next generation, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to make things better. And if I, if I have to be the one that has to, has to be at, at expense for that, you know, that's something I'm okay with. So I feel like just, I mean, just in the terms of Washington say, you know, it's very sad because those players, you know, they were, they, they stood up for themselves. They stood up in what they believed in. They stood up, for what they thought was right and what a lot of people thought was right. And they weren't even allowed to do that without repercussions. So it's, it's, it's something that's very sad. And I don't think is, should be acceptable in, in a lot of people's eyes. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it's just, there's a lot, a lot to unpack with that, with that situation up there. But I feel like that those players kind of got treated wrong and it just reinforces the, the system of just, having players just to play and kind of exploiting them for their talents and not really allowing them to be themselves, not really allowing them to have a voice, not, not allowing them to pursue the things that they want to pursue, you know, because the time constraints and they're kind of got the heavy eye on them and they want to please their coach so much, but it's just kind of in, it's kind of keeping that cycle going of, of exploitation, that something that we're trying to, eliminate with speaking out and kind of using our voice you know we really want to empower the athlete empower the college athlete to be able to use their voice be able to uh, unify among sports not just football but amongst all the sports at the school and I mean really really be and grow into the person that they want to be because that's what college is all about yeah and, and going off of what, what he said I think that's the ultimate goal that's not listed in those demands and I don't think people necessarily get that sense is that yeah, we're asking for all these things that are tangible that we, people would see on paper, you know. But at the end of the day, that's that's what we're that's what we're looking for. We're looking for you know a change in perception, a change in and changing views. Um, we understand that you know you know people think of us a certain way because of what's been projected. Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. We all know that um, you know change can happen. You know, it's just who's willing to do it and who's willing to work for that. You know, like I said earlier, I can't accept the idea that it's hard or it's too hard. I think everything's hard. You know, everybody has difficult you know, times, but, you know, you have to work to get, you know, to, to, to change, to change the world ultimately. And, and that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to, we're trying to change that perception and get, alleviate some of the, some of the pains and, you know, discomforts that a lot of these athletes go through. And yeah, we have it, we have a little bit better than most do, but it doesn't mean because you're in a situation that you asked to be in, it doesn't mean you can't, uh, you know, try to change um, the imperfections that are that go along with that. You guys have very effectively identified and attacked the main uh, pressure point that 
universities have used for decades, which is that athletes are transient. They don't stay very long. It's difficult for them to get organized. And there's the power of the institutions and the NCAA bearing down on them. Um, I was impressed in the statement that, and what you just said about preserving all existing sports, it's not just about football and basketball. Um, And you mentioned that in the statement, and you also attack that the argument that you know that that these sports are more difficult to to sustain by saying that what you need to do is reduce spending on facilities and administrators and salaries. Otito, I want to ask you specifically. You're a, a a shot putter in addition to a football player with Olympic aspirations. You've experienced college sports from the perspective of an athlete in a big revenue sport and a non-revenue sport. How has that influenced your thinking in terms of how you want this movement to go forward? It was eye-opening. So, you know, when I first got here to UCLA, you know, I was fully immersed in football for the first part of the year. And I, and I went over the track side and, you know, the sentiments they feel towards revenue sports, it, it, it's, it's great. And I'm not trying to speak for everybody, but, you know, the notion that I got was that we were spoon-fed in a silver platter, you know, that, you know, we, we got everything that they didn't get. In fact, that we were taking away from what they also kind of, you know, in a sense, deserve to perform and train and, and you know, and compete at the highest level. And to, to an extent, you know, that was true, um, you know, and, and not, nothing's perfect, but, you know, at UCLA, you know, we're not, they're not, you know, they're not feeding, um, you know, the guys at track the same, the same amount of meals are feeding the guys that, you know, at, you know, the washermen, but at the end of the day, like those resources um, can be allocated in a better way. So, you know, for us, people like to say that we have, you know, these lavish facilities and, and things like that. And I agree, we do. Um, but I think our biggest thing is when we get to these universities, it looks nice, you know, when you're getting recruited and when you first arrive. But when you're there, um, you definitely understand that that stuff doesn't matter. Um, to win games, you don't, you don't have to have the best locker room. To win games, you don't have to have the nicest uh, patio or, or the slide in your locker room. That's not, that's not what's required to win football. Because you see that echoed at the national, in the National Football League. Some of those facilities are no comparison, don't compare to what we have at the college, a collegiate level um, in terms of facilities and, 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 you know, weights and all those things. They have identified that to be a good football player, you don't, you need a, you need a field in a facility. And is it perfect in the NFL? No. But I think they kind of echo a little bit better of the system in terms of how to use your resources wisely. I mean, and, you know, being a, you know, a dual sport athlete, you get to, you get to see what ways they can preserve revenue sports. They, they say that you can't compete if you don't upgrade your facilities, but that's the whole principle that's wrong in this whole system, right? Uh, we shouldn't be trying to invest in uh, the, the facilities. Why don't you invest in the people, right? You get on this, you say, well, how can Pac-12 compete if we don't invest in facilities? Well, it's never going to be equal. You know, if we keep spending money, do you think we're ever going to reach the amount of spending that the SEC does on, the SEC does on in recruiting or in facilities? I don't think so. Um, you, you're not gonna you're not gonna put yourself in a hole um, just to make sure that you can keep up with recruiting. I think we could we could reverse or reimagine the thinking there and and try to reallocate these funds in a better way and and, and do it in a way that doesn't require excessive spending. I'm just gonna ask this. I mean, we're right here, early August. Football season is theoretically a few weeks away. Where do you think we'll be in October? Do you guys think you'll be playing football? It's, it's up in the air. I don't think anybody can give you anything definitive at this point. There's a lot of unknowns, like everybody, like everybody's understood to be. It's just, it's just one of those things where it's like, you're hoping, you're hoping, 
um, that we can play, but we're also trying to do it in the safest way possible. You know, and, and, and the way LA County is, is moving right now, we don't see um, necessarily, like, you know, at least, you know, our, from our movement, um, we don't necessarily see how we could move forward to, to go from, you know, the 10 men pods that we're in right now to full fledged competition. Uh, you know, there, there isn't enough testing yet. We, we still have, we still have, there's a lot of things we need to do to prepare for that. And we're not there yet. Um, you know, we can get there and, and it's possible, but there's also a chance it may not be possible. My mom is actually a physician. So people like them that study medicine and kind of know how things work. It's still a new virus. It's not COVID, but they know how, they know how these things work. So we kind of got to hear, heed their advice and if they're, they're what however they're feeling about it if they don't think it's safe i feel like we can't we can't try to force it you know we kind of got to kind of got to go we kind of got to go at it in the safest way possibly because i feel like if we try to force it we might have an mlb situation where a whole team gets in now that whole team's out now people are like hmm, is this is this really worth it i think major league baseball needs to listen to uh Elisha, because uh, when you screw things up really, really badly, then um, <laughs> a problem with with COVID is uh, now known as an MLB situation. That's what, that's what you don't want <laughs> as an organization is to be associated with screwing up so badly that it becomes known as an MLB situation. <laughs> MLB needs to listen to you. College football needs to listen to you guys. Yeah. yeah. Elisha, Tito, we are so glad to have you on with us. What you guys are doing is tremendously courageous. Thank you all so much for your time. And I hope maybe we can circle back around and check in on you all uh, maybe later and, and, and see how, how things are working with the movement. Yeah, no problem. Now, as promised, an update on our guests. Otito Obanaya got picked in the fifth round of the 2022 NFL draft by the LA Chargers. His first season with the team got cut short when he ruptured his patellar tendon. Speaking of athletes and healthcare and football. But Otito came back this November and has played in six games this season with six solo tackles. Elisha Guidry entered the transfer portal in the spring of 2022, moving on from UCLA to San Jose State. Um, But before he left, he got his BA in economics from UCLA. And while he finished up his college football career, he studied for his master's at San Jose State. According to his LinkedIn page, Joel, he is now pursuing a career in finance. Wow. He's in the Bay. I'm sure he'll uh, figure it out. San Jose State's not too far from me. That's a, the local school. So good for him and, and good for Otito, too. Uh, it, even when we talked to them at the time, it kind of seemed like Otito might have, might have an outside NFL future. So uh, good for him. Good for both those guys. I remember when we had that conversation afterwards, we are like kind of off the air being like, man, we're so impressed by both of those dudes. Yeah, I mean, it's not a surprise that they've gone on and have done really, really well, right? Um, I really like them, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk to them. I just wish that the momentum of their activism had lived past their careers, because um, even though a lot of stuff did change in college football, as you mentioned at the top of the segment— um, it still feels like there are a lot of things, particularly, you know, related to the care of the players and everything else that, is, that maybe didn't quite get there. And also, Josh, we talked about this offline. And has anyone missed any games because of COVID in college football in the last two, three years? I mean, COVID is still out there. There's a very active variant going around right now. But have you heard of anything like that in the last few years? I definitely have not. No, it's a good point. But I think 
that when and if things do change, I hope people don't forget what Otito and Elisha and other players did in 2020. I think that, um, you know, even though not everything that they asked for has happened, they did have an impact and will have had an impact when things um, do change and continue to change. Here, here. Absolutely. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.